you know, I don't want to cut through the time, but so what's the reason for moving up to Austin? Taxes. <laughs> hey, you ain't lying. And California is just, it's, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news, but it's a disaster, yeah. especially LA. It's just so poorly managed and run and everybody's moving out. So. Yep. Yep. We've seen it, man. It's not, you know, it's as beautiful as that city is too. I was just there yesterday. Matter of fact, I was in LA for, for the day uh, with a client. And when we got off the plane, it was, I don't know, 72. <laughs> Sun was shining. And it, yeah. it, was, it was perfect. Perfect. But they can't run a business. They can't run that city, that country, man. I mean, like, it might as well be a country, its own yeah. country. It it's almost run. like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, let's get, we're going to get started real quick, man. And, and, and again, on, on the Darren Woodson show, again, it's, we're I missing. it was the Ben Gibbs show. It, well, it used to be. I know, I'm sure you want it to be, but it's not, big fella. <laughs> So we, we normally have three of us. Tyler, Tyler Klutz is another one of our co-hosts. He couldn't be here. His daughter's having a birthday party for five straight days. But we're going to uh, – what we do on the show, man, we normally go back uh, and, and – Well, who's Brendan? To, who are we talking to? Well, you were going to lead in, okay. weren't you? Yeah. Okay. Can I <laughs> – can I finish up what I'm saying? Yeah, and go ahead. You, I'll let you lead in. <laughs> this dude, well, he's anyway. So we normally go back, and we want to get to to know you uh, as the person, and then what what a, you know what was it that got you to where you are in, in today's life in in, in in the world today? So uh, I, this dude, Ben Gibbs, will start it up. I got to call you this dude. Ben's gonna start you up. And we're gonna go. All right, here we go. So welcome to the Darren Woodson Show. Today's guest is Brendan Kane, and Brendan is a writer, but he's also, and, and something intriguing about Brendan is he is a social media expert. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know exactly what your title or what, what, what is the respectful title to call you. I don't know. What, what, what do you prefer people to refer to you as? Honestly, I don't even really care how people <laughs> like refer to me. I would say at a high level, what I really do is help people stand out in very crowded markets and mm. help their voice be heard. Perfect. There you go. That's, he said it better than I mm. could. Yeah. So to understand though, because you have a very unique story. I mean, you grew your following uh, to a million followers twice, if I'm, if I'm correct on that. Uh, in fact, one of the times you did it within 30 days to sign a book deal which is just unbelievable. So we definitely want to hear about that story. But before we get to that, we like to understand, you know, because social media, as great as it is, you just see the highlights. You see the end product a lot of times. And so what we want to understand is what led you to this point? How did you get here? So for you, take us back to maybe the beginning of your career, whatever, wherever the quote unquote starting point was for you on this journey. Yeah. So where it really started was in college. So I wanted to be a film producer. So I went to film school to hopefully learn about the business side of film and business in general. And when I showed up, I quickly realized they teach you nothing about business in film school. (laughs) So I was like, well, I should probably learn about business if I want to produce movies and, and understand that, that side of what it is to be successful. So the most cost efficient way at the time, and it still holds true today, was to start internet companies. Mm. So I started a few internet companies while I was going to college, really more so to learn and to experiment of what it takes to get something off the ground, manage it, scale it. I I am so much an experiential learner. Mm -hmm. 
I, I can't really read a book and just fully understand it. I've got to do it. I've got to get my roll up my sleeves and, and figure out what it takes to, to actually achieve something. So what were those startups? Brendan, if you don't mind me asking, what were those two startups that you Yeah, we did uh, an email marketing service. We also did, uh, back in the day, it's not as big now, but there was a website called alexa.com mm. that tracked website traffic. And people use that to determine uh, the validity of it. And we uh, found a system that could manipulate your Alexa ranking to drive more traffic and more visibility, more validation around your website or brand. And then I did some also just consulting for like radio stations and things about how to kind of leverage digital very early on uh, to drive more, more audience. So what year are we, what years are we talking here? 2003, 2004. Okay. So 2003, 2004, I'm trying to think of where I was, but I don't really know much about what the internet was like back then. How did you become or or at least position yourself as a quote-unquote expert that people would pay you for this type of thing? Well, it's at that time, it, really what was happening is the dot-com bust happened. And then around 2004, 2005, it started to reemerge mm-hmm. as that. And you know, how did I position myself as an expert? Well, it comes down to what I call a hook point is really how you overcome the the noise. And I, my second book is all on this. I spent mm-hmm. two years really diving in deep on this subject matter. And to me, how you stand out is, is less about your experience and how you contextualize the value that you're providing to people. Mm. So what that means is, let's just say that I asked you guys or asked the audience, like, what is your biggest pain point in life? What is your biggest pain point in your business? And then you tell me what it is. And I say, well, what if I could help you solve that? Mm-hmm. Then you're like, yeah, sure. How are you going to help me do that? And that's kind of the philosophy that I take with this, even just starting out and starting those internet companies. And then the progression of when I moved to LA in, in 2005, to pursue a career in film, I was thrust into one of the most competitive uh, industries in terms of how you stand out, how you rise above the ranks. Mm -hmm. So when I got to LA, again, I quickly realized I wanted to be a film producer, but I had to start off at the bottom. I had to start off making copies and coffee and delivery like everybody, everybody else. And as I started to see the conversation when people would ask, well, what do you want to do? Why are you here? I would say, I want to produce movies. You would kind of, and it's probably not as competitive as acting, but you still get those eyes rolling over like, Oh, another film producer or another wannabe film Mm -hmm. producer, because there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that move to LA every year with that dream. So again, I had to, to take a step back and figure out, well, what is my unique angle? What is the way that I can provide value? What is the biggest pain point? that I'm solving for. Uh, so like anything I, I do is I, t- I took a step back and I just started listening, listening to conversations in the office, listening about what a producer would tell a director or what a director was saying around the office or what the president of the studio was saying. And I saw something interesting is, is that once a movie was done, there was, a, and when I, when I say done, finished production, there was a sense of anxiety that would come over the office because you just invested tens of millions in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars in this product. And in less than six months or a year, you need hundreds of millions of people to know about this 
this new brand essentially in order to recoup that investment. So once I saw that anxiety and stress, I said, Hey, you know, social media is coming on the scene. Digital platforms are a great effective way to reach millions of people within 24, 48 hours. I created a few internet companies in college. I would love to help in any way, shape or form to ensure that your investment pays off to ensure that people show up at the box office. And that's what took me from making coffee in less than 12 months to starting a digital division for the first studio I worked for. And then that just extended in conversations with going into meetings with directors, going into meetings with actors and celebrities and screenwriters. And then they would ask me questions. Well, how can I do this for my personal brand? Mm. How can I maximize that potential? You know what I love about that is because you were obviously young. You were just making coffee. But yeah, how old were you at the time, Brenda? 2021. 20, yeah. I'm just thinking about how many of us in that role, it, it's, and, and, you know, our football background, it's uh. seen and, and not heard, right? Yeah. You, you just, if you're a young punk freshman, nobody wants to hear from you. But what's mm-hmm. interesting about your mindset was you really saw a pain point. You said, I'm the one. You stepped up. You said, I'm the one that's going to solve this problem. Not just... I'm not going to worry that I'm young or that I'm inexperienced. I'm going to step up and solve this problem. Absolutely. And there's, it it brings me to another story that's kind of interesting that you guys will totally get, but there was a short period of time where I was doing some work for Michael Strahan. And what he said when I was in a meeting with him is he would say that all these football players would come up to him and say, well, I want to be like you when I'm done. And he said, okay, if you want to do that, then what you've got to do is you've got to take the time and treat the journalists properly. Now take the time, invest in them, give value to them. Whereas you see, and I don't need to tell you guys, cause you know this, but there's a lot of athletes out there that couldn't be bothered Oh and, no. yeah. and don't want to take the time or play hard to get, or don't give valuable information. But Strahan, a genius is like, listen, I'm going to provide as much value to these people to yeah. these journalists, to these media organizations so that I can build that connection and solve the problem that they have. Cause they have, as you guys know, being on ESPN and all these things, you guys have a difficult problem that you have to solve. I need good stories. I need good mm-hmm. personalities to cover and you guys are doing it on the podcast here. So right. it's always really looking at what is the biggest pain point that you could solve for somebody and you, they will automatically become your best friend or your best clients. But how did you shed? I think the one thing I, that I'm curious about, because you seem like you were very adamant about being a producer. I mean, you, you, you had two startup companies in college, which is huge. I, trust me, I understand the startup industry. And, and I know that's a kick in the ass and can be. But you've gone, you went through that process. But your ultimate goal was to be a producer. So you had to pivot what was the what was going through your mind? I mean, because there there's got to be enough. There had to be a lot of pride in the way you're built. You probably had all this pride to say, "No, this is what I'm going to do: be a producer." So, what what was it in your mind that said, "You know what? I'm going to sit back and I'm going to pivot and do this. I'm going to ch- change everything and do this." Yeah. Well, my mindset, and this was ingrained to, into me very early on, is. I'm just looking at how can I provide the most value to people? Mm. I go into any meeting, any situation, just understanding who is this person? How do they perceive the world and what challenges and obstacles are they facing? And then from there, I can construct a story 
on a solution to help them get there. Mm. Whether it's me personally doing it, or maybe it's a referral I give them to somebody in my network, or maybe it's a book or something that I recommend. That's the way that my mind works is I don't have a big ego or um, like you said, just being set in my ways and be like, I have to be a producer. I'm only going to be a producer Mm -hmm. and only do that is I knew if I had any chance of wanting to be a producer, unless I'm going to play this long game of 10, 15 years and just working yourself up the corporate ladder, which I have nothing against, but that's just not the way that my mind works. And also there's no guarantee that even if you play that, that political corporate game that you're, it's going to lead to that. So my, my first assessment was, okay, I realize that just me bringing scripts to the table or ideas to the table is not going to help me stand out at the highest levels that I want to work at. So I need to shift my focus to this other medium that is going to provide immediate value to producers, screenwriters, and studios executives. So I get invited into the big meetings. Mm -hmm. So people remember my name. So people will take a meeting with me. And then gradually, as I was doing that more and more, I just realized as myself that I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Mm. And the studio system is another corporation. People think it's so sexy and creative and exciting to create movies, but it's a corporate structure. It's It's a corporate entity. And I just knew that for me, I was spending more time asking for permission to do things and actually doing things. And that just really wasn't cut out for who I am and what I wanted to be. And I saw the potential of where digital and social media was going. So I just decided to make that shift, not because I didn't think I could be successful as a movie producer, but I thought there was a larger opportunity for me and it was more creatively fulfilling to go in this new direction. You said you saw it, that new direction. You said you saw that's where the future was. Was that obvious at that point to everybody? Or do you feel like you saw that maybe before other people did? I would say I saw certain elements before anybody else. Oftentimes I would say that I'm probably too early for mm. things. Uh, so for example, when I was working at the, at the movie studio, uh, there was, I did the first ever influencer campaign on YouTube. This was back in like 2006. So we were promoting a movie uh, with Jason Statham called crank uh-huh. and we yeah. didn't have a huge budget uh, for it. And I just saw YouTube was starting to come on the scene. It was not what it was now. And there was no such thing as influencers. The term wasn't even there. Right. And I just saw these, these, these YouTubers creating this content, reaching millions of people. And I thought, well, why don't we just tap into that audience? So I just made a list of the top 100 YouTubers at the time. And I emailed all of them and said, do you want to interview a movie star? And we got three, three to five of the biggest YouTube influencers to say yes. And I didn't even pay them anything because it was so unique at the time because nobody was paying attention to it. But like now you look at the influencer market. Now it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Oh, yeah. But at the time I was looking at it as a means to an end, not looking at the larger picture of it. And, and then even on top of that, when I was working at the movie studio, uh, is when my space was acquired by Fox Interactive for $600 million. And I was like, well, how are they going to actually monetize this and get a return on investment? And as I was digging in, I saw that they were just using these banner ads and getting these low CPM rates mm-hmm. that you can't really become hugely profitable off of. So I started looking and digging in deeper, 
and saw that that MySpace and Fox was not capitalizing on the most for, valuable form of advertising. Is what was happening is people were posting uh, a Nike poster or a movie trailer or a music video, which is the most valuable form of advertising. Is it's a friend saying, "Check this out" to another friend. Yeah. So I decided, well, what if we could turn that into a technology and monetize that? So I built, essentially, looking back on it, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I built the first ever influencer marketing platform on top of MySpace, which was, you know, you could take your favorite movie trailer, um, Nike poster, whatever it was, put it on your MySpace profile, and each time somebody engaged with it, you got paid. Mm. And so, so with MySpace. But again, with that, we were too early because influencers weren't really a thing, and it wasn't as scalable as it is is today. So... I, I, I kind of look at what's interesting, what's where there's opportunity to solve complex problems for scale. Yeah. And that's where my ideas come from. I don't really look at it from the standpoint of what's going to happen five or 10 or 15 years from now. I look at, again, what my client's goals are or, or what a big problem is. And then I find a solution to solve it. You know, that's interesting. You brought up 2006 on YouTube. Why am I thinking like YouTube is maybe maybe ten years ago, maybe eight years ago? Oh, well, I remember I remember watching videos as you know at that around at that, that time. around yeah. that time. That's because yeah. like you're young, right? The old guy, the grape lady. Just, you remember grape lady? Do you remember yeah. that video? That that was my first ever YouTube video. <laughs> Do you remember the uh, evolution of dance guy? <sighs> no, I don't. Like he I don't. went through like the different. No, it was like the most viral video at the time, and we got we, we got were losers, Darren. <laughs> we definitely were. You know, and it's crazy. You know, well, he was about to tell a story. Yeah, I know he was, but I needed to jump in real quick, <laughs> brother. I need to jump in real quick because you're my son. I got a 27 year old son. He has been on like he couldn't wait to hear you talk. He couldn't be here today, but he wanted to hear you talk because he's like. This dude is a superstar in this industry, and you, you just don't understand. And I was like, I, I understand. He's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. So he, he kept talk, he's been talking to me about the vision. Like, you, you've had this vision about where, where this industry, you know, has gone and is about to go. And, we, and, and, we're, and, you're, and we're just scra- scra- uh, scraping the surface. He says, I want you to get, one thing he says, I want you to get in deep on the future of what, you know, Brendan sees with uh, uh, social media? So there's, there's a short-term vision and a long-term vision. The long-term vision of where social media goes is dictated by the hardware. So if you really want to know where social media goes, like going to CES is like the best place to see it. Because right now, you know, with these things, with your iPhone, this dictates the software. Mm-hmm. So any changes to this, dictates how we interact with social media. So that's where it's like Google experimenting with Google Glass and Snapchat experimenting with the glasses. None of it is really taking shape yet, but the future, the long-term future of social media is always going to be dictated not by the social media companies, but by the companies that are developing the hardware that facilitates that communication. Mm. So if you want to look at like the long-term moonshot vision of social media, like look at Elon Musk and what he's doing with the AI chips, inserting it into people's heads. Now that's crazy, but that's ultimately where it's going to go is we're not going to communicate with these things 10, 15, 20 years from now. 
uh, it's, it's all going to be done telepathically or through a Google Glass type interface or something like that. Now, the short-term aspect of it, let's just say like the next five years, I don't see any shifts in the platforms itself in terms of like a young startup coming and taking out Facebook, taking out Google or, or any of those big companies because they are extremely smart and intelligent. There's been so many articles about, oh, Facebook's dying. And that's, those articles have been coming out ever since 2007, 2008. And they keep beating that out because, and I don't know if you guys have seen The Social Dilemma, but they're playing off of behavioral psychology. Mm -hmm. This isn't luck. This is by design. But if you want to be successful on social media, no matter what platform comes up, it comes down to two things and two things only. One, are you able to grab attention? Are you able to get somebody to stop in those three to, first three to five seconds? So what we, we talk a lot about is pattern interruption. Mm -hmm. Is today we live in a world where there's over 60 billion messages sent out on digital platforms each day between social media, text messages, emails, push notifications. There's so much noise. And because of that, we're living in a world where you're no longer competing against your direct competition. You're competing against every piece of content. Mm -hmm. So like it or not, we're competing against LeBron James. We're competing against ESPN. We're competing against The Rock, Kim Kardashian, Dave Letterman, all of these people. And what we think about in order to be successful is how do we create that pattern interruption? So the visualization exercise that we do as a team and we do with our clients is, okay, somebody just watched LeBron James dunk. Somebody just watched the latest Netflix trailer. Yeah. Now comes your piece of content. How are you going to get somebody to stop after they've watched that other content just to stop? That's right. your first job. Because right. if you can't get them to stop, they're going to keep scrolling and that triggers to the algorithms. This content is not going to retain attention. So we're going to suppress it. Hmm. So that your first job is getting people to stop. Then once you have their attention, how long can you retain that attention for? And the longer you can retain that attention, the more reach and more distribution that you're going to get. There's kind of like a, a false sense of, yes, we live in a micro attention world, but it doesn't mean you can't hold people's attention for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. It just means that it's harder to grab the attention. And you guys are speaking on a medium right now on podcasts that can hold attention. So that's a medium that proves that fact. You've just got to figure out how do I get people into that? But Same thing it, with like Netflix is like people watch, binge watch eight hours of Netflix yeah. over the weekend and they're maintaining attention, but you have to grab it. Mm -hmm. So just to recap, those two things is one, getting people to stop generating that pattern interruption and two, how long can you retain that attention? If you can do those two things, you will be successful on any social media platform, no matter which one it is and no matter which one goes up, uh, comes up because all of these companies and it's broken down in the social dilemma is they're all fighting for attention and they all make money the longer you spend on the platform, which means they're always looking for the content that's going to keep people on the platform longer. And if you're one of those content providers, you will ultimately win. So let's, let's get into the, to the nuts and bolts here, because if you're, if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, you know, I want to be, I, I want to build a social media following. I want to build a platform. Where do they begin can you break down the different social media platforms and their, you know, what, what each one of them, uh, I guess the value of each one of them or how you would approach Facebook versus Instagram or versus YouTube? Like, can you break down the process for us if somebody just has no clue really where to start? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the first place I start is, is why, why do you want to be on social media? What is your goal? Mm -hmm. Is it, do you need to sell something today? Do you need revenue today? Or are you looking at how do I build, you know, a a brand over the longer term and and looking at the long-term play? And there's no right or wrong answer to that. If somebody comes to me and says, listen, I need to sell product tomorrow. I need to sell t-shirts. I need to sell shoes, whatever it is. Then I said, okay, we're not going to focus on followers right now. We're going to focus on leveraging the advertising platforms on these channels to drive revenue at scale. Because with revenue, as we all know, it cures everything. Without revenue, it makes it very hard to sustain a brand, makes it very hard to sustain a business. So in that situation where somebody comes to me and it's really, I need to generate revenue, I need to generate leads, whether it's B2C or B2B, doesn't matter. Then what I focus on is, okay, we're going to craft a strategy leveraging the social advertising tools to create campaigns to test at scale to figure out how we can profitably acquire clients at scale And then once we have that in place, then we reinvest into kind of social follower growth. Now, if it's the flip side, if it's like, okay, we're playing the longer term game, I want to turn myself into a a brand, an influencer, or I need to turn my my company uh, or brand into a social media, uh, social media rock star to really maximize the value of everything that that happens. I always like to start with content first. Because as I just broke down to you is I could give you guys a million followers tomorrow, but if you don't know how to get somebody to stop Mm. in the feed or in in the case of YouTube, click on your your thumbnail and headline and you don't know how to retain attention, it doesn't mean anything Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you won't get reach from the algorithms. And this is a big misconception is people think the more followers I get, the more people I can reach with my content. Now that could have, that was the case like six, seven, eight years ago, but because there's so much competition, it's like if I open up Instagram now, there's a thousand pieces of content the algorithms can seed to me based on all the people I follow, all the content I've engaged with. They have to prioritize because obviously they can't seed a thousand pieces of content into that feed immediately. They have to prioritize what are those top 10, 15 posts that I'm going to do. And if you don't fall into that category, you're not going to get views. You're not going to get engagement. So it really starts with how do I craft a a content strategy that one gets people to stop in the feed and then retain them. And then through that, you will gain followers or we can talk about the tactics of generating follower growth and those followers will stick or those followers will engage. So that's one level. Then the other level is, well, how do we choose the right platform? The first place I start is what platform do you use? Because you have to become a student of the game. Like this is like going to university. And by, by saying uh, student of the game, that doesn't mean you just consume content because if you open up Instagram every day and you consume content, that doesn't mean you you're an expert or understand what's working, what's not working, but you, you choose a platform that you use and then you dissect. Why did this piece of content get seeded to me? Why did this piece of content get a hundred thousand views versus this content got a thousand views? And then, cause we do this, we've been doing this for 15 years. We do this like me and my creative director, my creative directors generated over 40 billion views online. <laughs> we are, we're constantly trading content. We have WhatsApp threads, we have Instagram threads, and we're constantly sharing content with each other and learning from it, both positive high performers and low performers. So that's one of the first places that we start in terms of choosing that platform. 
Now, the secondary layer is, well, what are you trying to achieve? Because there's different behavioral patterns and consumption behavior and different audiences on different platforms. So when we look at like Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, LinkedIn, Snapchat, very short form consumption behavior. So you're lucky if you get somebody to watch a few minutes of content. They're more short form based. And I'm not diluting that value. I'm not saying that there's no value in it, just understanding that versus like a, a platform like YouTube, much more longer form consumption or podcasts, much more longer form consumption. So there's trade-offs with each platform of what you're trying to achieve. So if we're talking about like a B2B company where we're trying to sell something to major corporations, where I would probably start is let's focus on a cold outreach strategy on LinkedIn, target, make a list of all of our targets. So we want to target CMOs of companies that have at least 10,000 employees So we make that list, we craft a campaign to reach out directly to them on LinkedIn. And then what we'll probably use is is Facebook, Instagram, all these other platforms from a retargeting standpoint, meaning Mm -hmm. that we have this ability to connect with them on LinkedIn, but we want to make sure that we show up in every other place so that essentially we follow them around the the web and turn and become top of mind, generate top of mind awareness. Versus if we're going after young kids or we want to sell uh, products to people that are 16 to 22, then I'll probably be focusing more on TikTok or Instagram and focusing more on that short form content to really hook them in. So that's kind of the way that that I uh, approach it. I, I know I just threw a lot of information at you, so I'll just kind no, of No, no, that was that was good. Awesome. That was good. What, what you're saying, though, is, is a good thing and a bad thing. I think it's a good thing or... Because my my mind my mentality of social media was just kind of you you put something out there and you just hoped you get lucky, you just hope that it takes off, you hope that people see it, and if you do that enough, you're going to grow your following. But what you're saying is there's actually strategy behind it, so that's a great thing because there's something you can actively do about it if you want to grow a following. Uh, the bad thing is you have to actually put some effort in though. It's not just about <laughs> getting lucky. So on Instagram for let's let's take Instagram because or let's just take our podcast. The goal for us is to get as many listeners as possible, and so that's why we use social media. It's just to get the word out there. And on Instagram, for instance, because you talked about short form content, man, you see some people just scrolling through Instagram like it's I don't know how their thumbs don't hurt how fast they're going through it. So how do you grab that attention on on Instagram, for instance? Well, let's just take your podcast for example. Uh, because I, I spent two years in journalism. I, I worked with Katie Couric when oh. she went from uh, television to a digital first strategy. Oh, hey, Brandon, Brandon, hold on, hold on. Hey, take notes on this. This is free. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking, <laughs> but I'm not. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'll speak at I'll, I'll speak at a very high level, uh, but. So she was going from television first to a digital first distribution strategy, which is very different consumption behavior. And as you know, from being on ESPN Mm. is like ESPN is about a part of your habitual nature. She was on the today show as you tune in every day at the same time to watch the shows and you watch whatever subject matter is being covered because it becomes a part of your daily routine. As you wake up in the morning, you, you turn on, uh, um, ESPN or you tune on to today's show or you tune on MTV or whatever it is. And you'll watch whatever is there versus digital first strategy. 
you're dealing with what we've been talking about is the algorithms. They control distribution, they control reach, and you're not just fighting against you know, maybe five or 10 other shows for attention. You're fighting against billions of pieces of content. Mm-hmm. So what we needed to do is really reverse engineer the art of the interview for digital platforms. So I didn't really have any experience in journalism and I was thrust into this first meeting with Katie and she, she basically said, my problem is, is I have fans coming up to me on the street now saying, Katie, we love you, but we miss you. We have no idea where you're at because the algorithms were suppressing the content and Yahoo as a distribution partner didn't have a strong strategy to overcome that. So I was, I was like, okay, well, what, when is your first, when is your next interview? And she said, well, it's actually two hours from now with the actress Elizabeth Banks. And I was like, okay, perfect. I mean, put on the spot. <laughs> I come up with a, an entirely new strategy to an industry I know nothing about. So I just took a step back and I said, okay, this is the way that we're going to approach it is, you know, syndicating out the full interview on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube is probably not going to work. Right. Uh, it's going to be hard to hook people in. So what I want to do is I want to break this down into the the different audiences that would be most interested in this interview. So Elizabeth thinks she's in the Hunger Games movie franchise. She's in the Pitch Perfect movie franchise. She was a strong feminist advocate. And at the time she was uh, in a movie with John Cusack around the Beach Boys. So I said, okay, so this is what we're going to do. We're not going to come up with questions. No questions. What we're going to do is we're going to design the ideal outcome the, the ideal hook point that would attract a Hunger Games fan, that would attract a Pitch Perfect fan, that would attract a feminist advocate, that would attract a Beach Boys fan. So what we did is we developed the output of what we wanted to see in terms of the hooks of those clips for each of those audiences. So I worked with her to, to design five hooks for Hunger Games fans, design five hooks for Pitch Perfect fans, and, and so on. And then she took those hooks and went into that interview with that mindset of I'm designing this interview around the hooks that are going to bring people into the larger conversation mm-hmm. that we have. And what I, what we both realized together is the minute that you get out of the mindset of a question versus a hook, you can guide the person you're interviewing in the direction that you want. Because with a question, when you ask a question and, and you guys have had this experience of interviewing athletes, especially in short segments, they can get out of the answer yes. mm-hmm. or they can, or the answer can fall completely flat mm-hmm. versus if you know what the outcome is that you're looking for, you can guide them in different ways yeah. to get that emotional reaction and that emotional response and have more shots at getting the content that you want instead of, Hey, you know, uh, you know, the, the, you ask Peyton Manning a question and then he brushes it off or maybe he does give an answer, but it kind of falls flat mm-hmm. and is not what you were going for. So we did that. Uh, She came back with a completed 30 minute interview. And then I went through and started editing out those hooks. So I edited out the hooks for hunger games fans, the hooks for pitch perfect fans and so on. And then I took it a step further and I started a B testing all of them against each other. So we may have like 30 clips out of an interview, but then I would go in and I would use the marketing platforms to create hundreds of variations of each one of these hooks tweaking each element of it, the wording, the audience, um, the pacing, all of that. So I would take essentially um, one hook and turn it into a hundred variations. So any clip could have, or any interview could have upwards of 500 to a thousand variations of content that I was testing in real time. 
and seeing which ones are being shared at the highest velocity. Uh, velocity. So I would go from 500 to 1,000 variations down to like two or three winning variations in a matter of like seven or eight hours. And then once I had the ones that were being shared at the highest velocity, then I was like, hey, if you really like this clip of Elizabeth Banks talking about what it was like to work with Jennifer Lawrence, why don't you go to Yahoo and watch the full interview? Mm -hmm. And that strategy that I developed with her, we used for over 220 interviews, ranging from Joe Biden to Jessica Chastain to Chance the Rapper to DJ Khalid. And I tested over 76,000 variations of content across those 220 interviews to the result of uh, generating over a billion platform views and, and saving over $31 million in traffic acquisition costs. So at a high level, what I'm doing is for a podcast is looking at, well, what are the different entry points? What are the different hooks to bring people in? So when you take the larger interview and syndicate it onto Instagram, syndicate it onto Facebook or YouTube, use that mentality or mindset of what is that hook that's going to create that pattern interruption, engage them long enough to consume the entire clip and then say, I want to listen to the rest of that interview. And if you want to see who's the most successful podcast of all time right now that does this is Joe Rogan. Mm. Go to Joe Rogan's YouTube clip channel and you look at how they dis- dissect their, U- their, their, their full-length interviews into these hooks that bring people into the larger conversation. That's how I consume Joe Rogan's podcast. Unless it's somebody like Elon Musk where I already know it's going to be somebody of interesting yeah. Joe Rogan is a master of taking somebody you've never heard of, a scientist, a philosopher, a psychologist, and making them interesting and bringing you into the conversation through those individual hooks. And that's why he is so successful and so brilliant is because he does that process. Man, as you're sitting here talking, I'm, I'm laughing to myself because of how um, how you think about all this is so fascinating. I mean, it's it's truly human psychology as opposed to just, again, like I said earlier, you're just getting lucky. So it's fascinating to hear how you break it down and how analytical you are about this. Yeah, you know what's fascinating to me is is being in the the industry for so long and to know a professional like Katie Couric and for her to buy into you know, she's probably been doing and formulating her in their interviews and doing them in such a way for her. I mean, it speaks to her as far as humility to say, OK, look, help me do this. And and you and you proving to her that if we can provide these hooks that her following would increase. I mean, that is to me, that is huge because that's someone who is I mean, she's legendary. She's a legendary interviewer. Mm-hmm. And for her to change anything off the scope of what she's been doing, you know, Hey man, kudos to her and, and, and to us who are, we're listening right now to, to what you're saying, we need to get on our game. Yeah, for sure. Cause you suck, Ben, <laughs> you suck. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about if, if you have a big following or if you're a celebrity, how that doesn't necessarily translate because you could have, you know, you know, you see these celebrities that have these, these big or these big followers, but then you look at their photos and they have 500 likes or whatever. What, what's the disconnect between a big following but in, or engaged following? So it, it goes back to what we were talking about with the algorithms. It's That tells me that A, they're not getting people to stop. Mm-hmm. And if they're getting people to stop, they're not retaining that attention. So typically, the issue is they're not getting people to stop in the feeds. And the more that happens, the more that you do that, 
uh, and, and pu- publish content that doesn't get people to stop, the more you're training the algorithm to say this account is not an account that's going to retain audience. So out the gate with each piece of content, they're saying you have to you have to prove it to us. So let's just say that an account has a hundred thousand followers and they post a video or an image. What the algorithms will do is, especially for accounts that haven't proven themselves, they'll seed it to five hundred people, and they'll measure certain ratios for like video. They'll look at like the number of views to reach. Or for a photo, they'll look at like the number of seconds they spend on it or the engagement. And through that, if it hits the, the, the ratios and metrics they're looking for, they'll go from 500 to 1500. They'll test it again. And if it holds, they'll go from 1500 to 5,000 and they'll keep growing to the point where if you're really dialed in, if your content is really nailing it, you can reach more people than you have followers or subscribers, whatever it is versus if you seed it to those 500 people and it's not generating it, they're saying we're cutting it. You're, mm-hmm. you're not getting any more reach because this is not going to keep you on the platform longer. And the algorithms have to be ruthless about this because there's so much content and because their, their business is so dependent on keeping and maintaining attention. So if you see a celebrity or somebody with a big audience that has low engagement, it's not typically that their fans are not engaged. It's not typically that they have fake followers. It's that you're not playing to what the algorithms are looking for, so they're going to suppress that reach. Now, there's no free wins in this at all. Like, we could sometimes have a a video that we publish that will get 10,000 views, and the next one will get a million. Mm. And, And it's because what the algorithms are looking for. But I guarantee you, if you hit those two things that they keep talking about, getting people to stop and retain that attention, you will get more reach and virality uh, than you could ever imagine. And once you really start getting good at it, then you're training the algorithms. This is a great content provider. So like one of my friends that wrote the forward for my book, Prince EA, is one of the most viral video creators on the planet, generating billions and billions and billions of views. He's earned so much clout and credibility with the algorithms because they see that he's checking off all the things that they're looking for. They're right out the gate. He'll get more reach. And that's how he can get a video with a hundred million views or 200 million views and only have 5 million followers. That's something I did not know. What you just said about if you have a, they, they only, they keep it to 500 to start as a kind of a tester before. I just assume if you had a hundred thousand followers that, 100,000 people were seeing your content right. and, and just however many people decided to like it, that's how many people liked it or whatever, whatever platform you're on. I didn't realize that they suppressed it like that. That's crazy. Yeah, because you, you, you've got to earn that trust with it. Yeah. And again, if you open up Instagram, each individual probably has a 1,000 pieces of content that could be seeded to them. They have to be prioritized. They can't mm. obviously seed everything. And people are following hundreds, in some cases, thousands of accounts. So they need to determine what content does this person want to see yeah. to keep them on the platform longer and, and, and more engaged. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell, talk to us about your experience because like I, like we started the show with, you've grown your following to a million two different times. And in fact, one time you did it for a book and, and I'm probably butchering the details, but tell us a little bit about that. That's a fascinating story. Well, it was really, first and foremost, there's a lot of misconceptions about it of people that haven't read the book. I did it purely as an experiment. Again, I'm an experiential learner. So I need to experiment and see what it takes to do it. 
to understand the mechanics of it. In addition to the fact, like, it's not just my accounts that we've grown. It's collectively of a, as a team, we've, we've amassed over 50 million followers for our clients and, and 50 plus billion views for our clients as well. Wow. So it's just not about our accounts. There's way more accounts that we've grown that people haven't seen it. But uh, when I did a million followers in 30 days, I did it on Facebook first. And essentially uh, what I saw was I, it took me about three and a half years to develop these systems for testing content at scale. And I was doing it for professional athletes, journalists, and celebrities because as you guys know, in today's world, a lot of the earning potential is predicated based on endorsement deals. And endorsement deals are really driven by how much social reach, how many followers you have. So I had a lot of people coming to me saying, well, can you help me figure out how to scale followers uh, globally so I can get bigger endorsement deals? And some of them, like I started off working with extreme sports athletes, like almost all of their earning potential is based on brand endorsement deals because they don't get huge salary checks or, mm -hmm. or huge uh, prize money. So I had about three and a half years of really developing and honing uh, this process of testing content at scale. And then uh, I had thought about uh, what I wanted to do with my career. And it's really teaching and inspiring people and consulting for people on how to scale their brands and their dreams. And I knew that a book was a great platform for it. Uh, but I also knew, and I, I don't do anything unless I can do it at scale, that I needed to have a solid hook. I needed to have a solid pattern interrupter because there's, I think it, the last time I checked, was self-publishing. There's like 9 million books published every year. It's just crazy the amount. So I knew I needed to have something to stand out, something to grab that attention. And I just, when I was seeing all this data of coming in all around the world, it was really fascinating and I would always get these questions. It's like, oh, it's great that you worked with Taylor Swift or MTV or Katie Couric or Michael Strahan, but what about the rest of us? People automatically think it's so much easier dealing with a celebrity, which it's not because you're dealing with a whole slew of challenges. But those questions sparked an idea in my head is like, okay, well, what if I did this, used everything that I've been learning for these major celebrities and brands and took somebody from zero to a million followers? and do it in less than 30 days or, or, or a certain time frame. Mm -hmm. wow. would, that be, would that be a hook that could work for a publishing deal and a book? And again, the book was just the foundational piece because I knew with a book, a successful book, I could get on stages and speak to thousands of people. I could get on major podcasts. I could get on television print and really have a meaningful impact around the world. So what I did is, and how I do everything is I test. So I called a, a literary agent I knew that represented over $5 billion worth of book sales. He brought the four dummies books to, to market. He represents Ecratoli. And I said, Hey, I'm thinking about this experiment of doing a million followers in 30 days and turning it into a book. If I do this, will you sign me as the client and get me a publishing deal? And then the answer was yes. So then I started seeding it to, to, to marketing experts in my circle of influence. I said, is this an interesting thing that you would be interested in learning more about or reading a book? And the answer was yes. So then I just did it. It wasn't a matter of if I could do it because I had enough data to support it, enough experience. It was why I was doing it. Mm -hmm. And it was again, that pattern interruption to have a larger conversation that I wanted to have with people. And that was the initial hook. So I did it for Facebook um, in 30 days. I've done it in as quick as 14 days on Facebook. I did it once for a, a non-for-profit and then it came to Instagram is like, okay, now I want to do it for Instagram. Now with Instagram, 
I didn't have the same luxury as I did with Facebook. So I didn't have years of experience and clients to experiment on. I had to do it on my own account because none of the clients really wanted that I was working with at the time wanted to focus on it. So I invested my own money, my own time and own resources to crack Instagram. It took me longer to grow the audience to a million. I don't know the exact number. It was but like seven or eight months, but it was because I was learning as I was going versus Facebook. I knew right away how to do it. It was a matter of just doing it right. versus Instagram. Mm-hmm. I had to figure out the model. We got it to a point where we developed the system where we could generate upwards of like $300,000 in a single month. We did, I think it was like the most we did was 90,000 followers in two days uh, through wow. this systematic <laughs> process that we developed. God, that totally blows oh, my, what my next question was going to be, which was how much of this is just time? You just got to give it time. But what you're saying is if you understand the game, you can reduce that time dramatically. Yeah. I mean, there's, so the way that I approach things, I'm only interested in it if I can reproduce it. So my way is not the only way. My my way is not the perfect way or the best way. And the way that I structure my books is I don't just provide my experience and, and the way that we do things. I interview the top experts in the world, friends of mine, partners of mine. Some of them are more successful than me because I hate people that say, and I'm sure you guys experience this in sports, this is the only way to be successful. This is the only way to do things. When there's so many different ways to do things, there's so many different philosophies and strategies. So to me, when I share this information, this is how I did it. This is how we've done it for multiple clients. And it's a systematic approach that I know we can reproduce over and over and over again. But here's some other perspectives. Here's some other ways of doing it. And some of them may contradict each other, Mm -hmm. but I want to provide a well-rounded expertise or well-rounded strategies that people can choose from. And even in my inner circle, we trade strategies. It's like, oh, you made this work for Instagram. Well, this is how I made it work for Quora. Or this is how I made it work for YouTube or LinkedIn. So we're we're kind of like a... um, a community yeah. that that trades secrets and helps each other and j- provides different perspectives yeah. to get to the end goals uh, that we're looking for for ourselves and for our clients. Man, that's that awesome. Is, that is that's a community, yeah. a true community. I, I guess one of the questions I would have, uh, you know, in speaking in specifics, as, as far as like our podcast, and you mentioned creating these hooks. So, is that an upfront? is that something we would have to do sit down before we do like this interview with you right now, Brendan, should we have applied those hooks early on and figure out, Hey, this is the Avenue we want to go down. And you know, here are those five hooks throughout this interview. Is that how you would, how you look at it? That's the way that I look at it. I, I, the way, the way that I think about it is why should anybody care? Why should anybody care about this interview? Why should anybody listen to this interview? What is it that's interesting about it that's going to grab people's attention? Now, for me, as a guest, I've already delivered the hook points for you. Like, as we're talking, I'm doing this on the fly because this is the way my brain is is generated. And going back to Joe Rogan, he's doing it intuitively as well. But going into the interview of thinking of, like, unless you're dealing with like Peyton Manning who people are just going to tune in because they want to hear Peyton Manning uh, is, well, what is going to make this, this interview interesting? Like why would I tune into an interview with Peyton Manning? Or let's just say it's a, 
you know, somebody like me that your audience may not know, or a scientist or a philosopher, like, why would somebody care? Why would somebody tune in to listen to this unique conversation? And I can definitively tell you also that even if you get the big stars, like the Peyton Mannings, the Tom Brady's of the world, that does not guarantee that people are going to listen. Mm-hmm. I saw this with Katie Couric. It's like, just because you interview a celebrity does not mean people are going to pay attention to it. Because you guys know in sports, Tom Brady or LeBron James have been interviewed millions Many of times. times. Like, yep. what's the unique angle on it? Mm-hmm. What's the unique perspective on it? And that's where I, I think really, and it doesn't have to be a lengthy process, even just sitting down for 10 or 15 minutes to think about, well, what would get me to click on to listen to this interview? What is the most unique thing oh. about this person that's going to hook me in mm-hmm. to it? Yeah. Think right. about that headline. Well, that's that's a great way to because we know you got to run, so that's a great way to wind this down. Because if we're being honest, we've just been winging it. Yes, <laughs> these six seven months, we've just been kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Having you know, we have full time jobs, so it's like, how much time do you really invest into it? Is is and really think about it. What I love, you said, why should anyone care? That's a great mm-hmm. question to ask yourself yes. when you're creating this content. So. Before we run, definitely want to let you plug where people can find more out about you. It sounds like you work with people who, who are interested in building their following. And then tell us the, the title of those two books again. Yeah, so the two books are Hook Point, How to Stand Out in a Three-Second World, and One Million Followers, How I Built a Massive Social Audience in 30 Days. I recommend everybody start with the Hook Point book right. because, again, that is playing into those two most uh, important factors that we talked about. How do you generate the pattern interruption and get people to stop scrolling? And number two, how do you get somebody to retain that attention to play to what the algorithms want? So we break that down in depth in the hook point book and they can get that uh, at book.hookpoint.com. They can get it in all major retails and stores, but if you go to book.hookpoint.com, we give you a free hour and a half masterclass Oh, that breaks this. Oh, this we're, we're literally, right. as soon as we hang out with you, we're going to that. <laughs> we're we're not, not kidding. We're yeah, going to go do I'm that. I'm on it already. <laughs> and then uh, for, for 1 million followers, again, that book can be bought anywhere or you can go to 1 million followers.com uh, to learn more about it. If people want to get directly in touch with me, they can direct message me on Instagram at Brendan Kane or they can email me at bkane at brendanjkane.com. Awesome. That is awesome. Last question. We ask every guest this. This is a little bit of a unique episode uh, just because this was more about practical knowledge as opposed to a journey. But if you could go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? I think it would be definitely going back to younger childhood. Cause I experienced like a lot of younger tr- childhood trauma and like post-traumatic stress with just experiences that I went through and just being like that almost like bigger brother that I didn't have, or just kind of really just making that younger child feel more safe in the world and understanding that things are going to be okay. So that's kind of the way that I would approach it, which is probably a little bit of a different answer than you guys no. are used to, oh, but that's the way that I, no, that's good. That's yeah. good. And next time you're, you know, we have you on again. We definitely want to dive into. Yeah, you're you're moving to Austin, right? Yeah. Okay, so we're not too far yeah. from you. We will see you again. We're gonna make sure we get you. We'll send a car. <laughs> <laughs> ben will send his private jet over to get you, man. But we want we definitely want you on again because there's so next time we're gonna do what next time we're gonna do. We're gonna we're gonna practice. have a million followers next no, time. <laughs> we're gonna practice the hooks. 
That's for sure. We're going to practice that because that's something that I don't think we do a good enough job. I know no. we don't do a good enough job on as far as because you're talking about preparation. It's not like this is not like a fly-by night. Well, it's just like football, right? You don't yeah. just show up on Sunday and play a game. Like There's preparation, and it's so interesting to hear, Brendan, you talk about how this is just like anything else. There's preparation that, that, that needs to take place. And, and start uh, what would be really helpful to you guys and people listening to get good at it is when you tune into ESPN or if you go on YouTube or you go on social media, what causes you to click on a story? Mm. What causes you to watch something and, and really start taking mental note of that and even creating a little notebook or a little place like on Instagram, you can you know save things or YouTube, you can save things or favorite things. And it'll really start training your brain to think this way. Mm-hmm. And that's the first part is start having awareness of what captures your attention. And like, I could tell you definitively in any sports interview, what captures people's attention and what doesn't. Cause I, I, the funny thing is I consume more sports talk radio than I actually watch sports. <laughs> so I see the headlines. I see how they're constructed, right. how they're broken down. What causes people to click? What causes something to go viral versus what something doesn't cause go, to go viral. So if you ever, if you guys ever start a sports network, yeah, I can uh, give you some some tips. Here we go. Well, real quick, are you quick. are you a Cowboys fan? What, what who do you root for? Well, I'm from Chicago, ah, so Bears, I try Bears. and avoid watching the Bears as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> We're going through the same it's thing too, here in Dallas. It's it's too painful. Yeah, um, it's a cliche the thing to, to say, but I love watching just great teams yeah. go against each other. I, if I watch the Bears too much, I will just get too depressed. And <laughs> my mind. Well, our, our usual third co-host who sits down there, he uh, he played for the Bears for what? I guess for it was a only a year. Yeah. yeah, no, a year and some. Change. Yeah, it wasn't very long. You probably never heard of him. His name's Tyler Klutz, but it, it's okay. Yeah, he played for the Bears for a little bit, but that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it, it's awesome to connect with you guys, and yeah, I think man. you're really on the right path. Well, we appreciate just, it. Just tweaking and getting smarter and learning every day yeah, yeah. absolutely we're definitely going to book.hookpoint.com oh, right after, right after, after this <laughs> so thank you for we that. so much appreciate your time man thank you so much and brendan we're yeah, gonna get back with you man we're go- definitely gonna get back with you because we want you out here in our new studio at the beginning of the year for sure let's right. do it thanks brendan